Good morning. Great to see you all here. As Rich mentioned, you can turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 14 is our text for this morning. As you turn there, let me just say greetings from Columbus Reformed Presbyterian Church. And the Lord is good to us there in Columbus, and we're thankful for the ways he's been good to you here, and thankful for our partnership in the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we come to Genesis 14, uh, let me just say in preview that this is a very kingly text. If you count, at least in, uh, if I did my counting correctly, the word king is in the text 28 times. We will be immersed in the theme of kingship and kingdom today. Just a bit of background leading up to this text. Abram is this pilgrim who's been called to enter the promised land and dwell there as this going pilgrim. And in Genesis 12, he's gone into Egypt and come out. In Genesis 13, he's prepared to enter the promised land. And in Genesis 14, he goes on conquest in the promised land. That might sound familiar to some of you because maybe you've remembered already the story of Israel who went into Egypt and then came out and prepared for the promised land and then went on conquest. And that's exactly the story of Abram. I've heard this text that we're coming to today compared to something like stepping onto the first step of an escalator that leads up to a very high view, perhaps over a city, say at the top of a a skyscraper or something like that. Uh, This is one of the first texts in Scripture that gives great insights into the kingly reign of God in this world. And once you step on here in Scripture, Scripture will take you to a very high vantage point. Revelation 11.15, our great anticipation. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That's what's in front of us. And in Genesis 14, we step on the escalator and we discover what is the kingdom of God like? What does he accomplish? So with that in mind, we'll read Genesis 14. Let me pray before I read. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that it gives light to our eyes, that it uh, prepares the path before us, and it gives us insight into who you are and to what you've done. Lord, would you do that in this text this morning? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 14. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemaber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Kedorlaomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedorlaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashteroth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shavakiriathaim, and the Horites, in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran, on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites, who were dwelling in Hazazon 
Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Kedor Laomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariach, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now, the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions, and the women, and the people. After his return from the defeat of Kedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. This is the word of God. Well, I remember my first experience of driving or riding on what seemed like the wrong side of the road. And I'm sure many of you have done this quite more frequently than I have. But I took a business trip to Japan, and after getting off the plane... I went into the back of a taxi that was there to pick me up, and to my great disorientation, the driver pulled out on the left side of the road and began to drive. Now, I realized quickly that he was following the laws of that land, that land but the combination of my jet lag, uh, the motion sickness on the plane, the city lights, the driver racing around all the curves, not quite knowing where I was going, and cars racing toward me on the right side of the car, my mind at least was telling me we were going to crash at any moment. It was a very disorienting experience to enter a new land, a new kingdom, you might say, and discover that they do things a little differently here. And life in the reign and rule of God 
can be like this. We wake up one day and we discover that we are in God's kingdom. We are in a kingdom or world ruled by our God and it may not be going quite as we expected and we wonder why exactly is this happening and where exactly are we headed? It can be disorienting. Maybe the disorientation is that you've tended to think of your life as a kind of personal salvation story and that's all there is to knowing God is a very personal experience and then it just got announced to you that actually you're in a kingdom and you're wondering well how does that work maybe you don't yet know the Lord Jesus Christ maybe you're like a traveler at the edge of the airport and you see the taxi going by and you know which side of the road it drives on and you're not sure you want to get in the taxi you're not sure you want to dive into this kingdom and you're wondering Is that really going to work out for me? Maybe you've lived your life in God's kingdom and you've known it as a kingdom. Maybe you've been a member of a church for decades that has a banner that says, For Christ's crown and covenants. And you're quite used to talking about the kingdom, but you need a refresh, a 101 on what is the kingdom advance of God all about. Well, wherever you are, what you need to do is get on the escalator. Climb on in Genesis chapter 14 and discover the nature of the advance of the kingdom of God. God in Genesis is unveiling his purposes for the world. Genesis 14, we see and discover the nature of a God who builds a kingdom, advances in conquest for his glory. We're going to see this particularly in what we discover is really King Abram and King Melchizedek and all the other kings around them in this text. Five defining features this morning of kingdom advance. You should have those in your bullets. And five defining features of kingdom advance. What is the nature of God's kingly build in this world? Uh, Number one, it is a conquering kingdom. A conquering kingdom. Uh, This really we see in something like the first 16 verses. God's kingdom and God's king moves into a world of fighting and warring kings. And guess who wins? God gets the victory. God conquers. This is clear in the text. If you read Genesis 12 and 13 this afternoon, you'd, see, you'd find every maybe eight or nine verses, ominous words of Abram going in this promised land and Canaanites or dwelling in the land. Just when you think Abram's about to get comfortable, Moses reminds you that there were Canaanites there. There are unbelievers there, and there are those who Abram should be terrified of, and we wonder, is he even going to survive? Will the pilgrim Abram be wiped out along with his family? He is not just in a world of an individual sinner here and there, we discover in Genesis 14 that there are these frightening kings all around, small cities, small nation states, you might say, with their individual kings. And Abram's there in the land, and war breaks out, and it's uh, firing away all around Abram, and Abram's immersed in it. And then Abram gets in the battle, and Abram wins. Abram wins. He enters the battle. And the thing ends, we discover it's King Abram, perhaps to our surprise, is not just an incognito 
pilgrim worshiper. Abram is this conquering king in the land of Canaan. Now, I've already mentioned before I read the text that Abram's experience as he goes into the promised land maps to the experience of God's people in history. And this is very helpful as we read the book of Genesis. Moses wrote the book of Genesis for people in the wilderness preparing to enter the land that Abram is entering here. And it's a kind of teaching history that Moses is doing. Uh, God's people there in the wilderness would look into the land and they'd see terrifying kings in front of them. They'd look back in their past and they'd remember Egypt and maybe be tempted to go back. They were tempted and Moses says, let's remember again what happened to Abram. Abram, Genesis 12, went into Egypt and God delivered and rescued him and grabbed him out of that land to bring him back into the promised land. Genesis 13, Abram prepares for the promised land, and Abram and Lot are there. And Lot makes a decision, Genesis 13, 10 says, to go into a land that reminded him of God's garden, reminded him of Eden, but also reminded Lot of Egypt. And Lot said, see you later, Abram, I'm off to the land that reminds me of Egypt. And Abram continues toward the promised land. And then Genesis 14, Abram goes on conquests. And the message to God's people then and the message to God's people today is continue toward the promised land. And when you see a world of enemies in front of you, know that God's king wins in the promised land. So carry on in conquering. You could actually go read, say, in the book of Joshua this afternoon where Joshua finds himself in battles in Joshua 10 and 13 that are very similar to this. Five kings here, five kings there going in and conquering like King Abram did. And of course, as we step on the escalator here, we're just headed towards what is unfolded in all of history and across the scriptures. You're going through Mark, and I believe just a few weeks ago, uh, you heard preached in Mark chapter 11, Jesus riding into the land on a donkey, riding into a land with wicked kings, uh, they go by Herod or Pilate, but they might as well go by Kedlaurmer II, right? Shinab II. Jesus is in this world, and he's this one individual, seemingly weak man in the eyes of the world, and there are these raging kings all around him, and they're preparing to put him to death, and guess who wins? Jesus Christ conquers in the land the enemies of God's people. And he conquers his enemies, and he conquers Satan and all the forces of darkness. Westminster Shorter Catechism. Christ executeth the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. Jesus does what Abram does in Genesis 14. Jesus does it fuller and greater and with eternal accomplishments to lead the history of the world towards his kingship being seen in all the earth. And it says in Romans, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We conquer in Jesus Christ. We 
conquer in the shadow of Abram, you might say, in Genesis 14. And of course, our conquering in Jesus is a conquering that takes place through sacrificial love. Of course, Jesus on the cross laying his life down that he might conquer. Local congregations don't put together troops of 318 men as a little militia to go attack all the enemies that we can see around us. We conquer in the footsteps of Christ. But we see that anticipated here. Genesis 14. We may feel small. The war may seem bigger than us, but Christ's kingdom is a winning kingdom. So number one, it is a kingdom that conquers enemies. The second feature then of this kingdom is uh, really comes with a question. What if you, you have fled the kingdom? Is hope lost for you if you distanced yourself from the king at any particular point? Second feature of the kingdom, it is a kingdom for rescuing sinners. It is a kingdom for rescuing sinners. Already pointed out, that man Lot. Genesis 13, 10, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. In Genesis 13, Lot sees some land that reminds him of Eden, but it also reminds him of Egypt, and he heads away from Abram, away from the promised land. In a sense, it's as if he's this close to giving up on the mission of God in the world. Lot is the bum nephew who got off track in life. Lot, you're not sure he wants to come to Thanksgiving dinner. You're not positive you're planning on inviting him. There he is. He's off doing his own thing. And then he gets immersed in this war among these evil kings and he's captured. And what does Abram do? Rallies his troops. 318 trained men go on all-out pursuits to go get the sinner back. To get the fool back who ran away from the king. Does that remind you of any Bible stories you've heard before? of a king chasing the fool who ran away from him. You know, our culture loves rescue stories. Maybe you love the story of the soccer team that got trapped in the cave and the thousands of forces and people that gave themselves to get that soccer team out of the cave. Or maybe you know the story of Captain Richard Phillips, whose ship was captured by Somali pirates in 2009. Maybe you've Watch the movie. Try watching that thing and not have your heart racing for the last 30 minutes or so. He's captured by the pilots. The U.S. military is swooping in. Can they accomplish the rescue? Here's just a fascinating feature of that story. Uh, Phillips, who was actually quite a controversial figure, he was sued by something like half his men for putting them in great danger on the high seas. Perhaps he uh, was sort of in that situation out of his own faults. But the Hollywood version of that story cleans that all up and makes him the noble hero. Why do they do that? I don't know exactly why, but maybe it's because we like rescue stories and we're more attracted, we think, if it's a good dude that needs to be rescued. Maybe we tell ourselves that we've been good enough, that if we ever got in really big trouble, our goodness, our kindness, our nobility 
is what will inspire our friends to come and get us. But here's the problem. We know our hearts better than that, don't we? The readout of our lives, at least by the time we get to about chapter 14 of our own life, is that we make decisions like Eve made in the garden, chasing a goodness that was not promised or offered to her. We make decisions like Noah made after the flood and chasing the attraction of the world there in the vineyard. We make decisions like Lot made in Genesis 13, where Lot says, enough of the promised land, I'm attracted to what I see over here. And so often the reason we are in harm's way is because we've made decisions that get us outside the railroad tracks of the promises of God. And is that the end of the possibility of hope for us? No. The Bible says that the kingdom of God is on the move to rescue people like that. Luke 19.10, Jesus describes himself as the son of man. Daniel chapter 7, the son of man is kingly language. What did the son of man come to do? Luke 19.10, the son of man, the king of kings, came to seek and to save the lost. He came to seek and to save the lost. This is disorienting. This is left side of the road stuff for this world. The modern kingdoms of this world... What you tweeted 10 years ago will haunt you till the day you die. The world embraces a kind of intense justice against those identified truly as the bad guy, whoever has been decided that that person is. And the ideas of deep forgiveness, real grace, real mercy, it's hard to figure out whether that's a good idea anymore in our modern kingdoms. This kingdom rescues the bum sinner who's caught in captivity. That's what our king is up to. And, and what a blessing that he is a king who can do it. We love the idea of Jesus, humble, meek, and mild. Yes, he is. And he's also a king who rides on a horse to go forth to victory. He rides on the donkey. And he comes in to bring the accomplishment, to chase down the sinner. This is a king who when he puts his mind to it, goes and gets the sinner. It's a kingly love for sinners. We're on the escalator. This is how God's kingdom's kingdom works. Are you lot this morning? Don't try to tell yourself, I, I, I didn't chase after Egypt. I'm just bad at directions. That's not going to be how you get out of your situation. Just admit it. You are as lot this morning. Admit that you really desperately need a king who comes after you and to thank the Lord that his name is Jesus Christ. It is a kingdom that rescues sinners. But there's more. Number three, it is a kingdom of blessing and curse. It is a kingdom of simultaneous blessing and curse, or you could say blessing and judgments. Abram and his crew is sort of like a walking judgment blessing center. Genesis 12, 3, God had promised that this is what would happen with Abram. Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. From Abram is going to flow out the blessing of God 
from him is going to flow out the cursing of God. On blessing, maybe you could think of Abram as perhaps something like a mobile clinic. You know, those RVs that maybe travel to impoverished areas to administer medicine to those who don't have as much access. And maybe Abram is like that, going into areas and bringing the blessing of God. But maybe Abram is also like the police officer who patrols the city streets of troubled areas, knowing that there is a kind of justice that needs to be brought in this environment of the world. What you see is that as Abram moves into this world and as his kingdom advances in a sense, there is the blessing that proceeds from it. If you were a king on Lot's side, you may not be righteous. We get a very strong sense the king of Sodom is not. But there's a residual blessing that comes from Abram. Lot's rescued and they are rescued. Simultaneously, Abram is bringing the wrath of God into the world in a sense. Lot's bring Lot's enemies, get the curse and the judgments of God as Abram comes in. These kings of the world didn't know what, they, what was coming when this guy from the Ur of the Chaldeans showed up in their region. What was coming was the judgment of God. The kingdom of God operates in this way. It moves towards judgments in this world, stands in opposition to the forces of darkness and evil in this world and cries out uh, the wrath and justice of God and it moves to blessing at the same time. The nations are under the rule of our God and the blessing of God flows to the nations. A great sermon illustration I heard once and it's not my own but uh, you find Presbyterian hospitals and you can find Methodist hospitals uh, but have you ever walked into atheist hospitals? It's the believers who have gone around in this world planting the hospitals and bringing that kind of blessing to the nations. And at the same time, the church moves into the world and announces the truth and justice of God. And again, this can be maybe a bit disorienting. Some Christians want none of that. Just pull out. We are a holy huddle till Jesus comes back. And the only way that's, that's the only way Christians know how to think is just move away from the world, but God's kingdom moves in and apparently cares about what's going on with Keter Laurimer and Zuzim and all of that. Some Christians want to sort of only be a blessing center, only want to think in terms of being the mobile RV clinic. And there are strong evangelical Christians think this way, and of course, some who give up the gospel. All they want to think of is sort of, can you feel the love tonight? We are here just to make you all happy. Other Christians, of course, it's judgment only that they want to bring into the world. Can you feel how much we hate you? As the message Christians proclaim, I remember the campus preacher at Purdue University who would pronounce curses, on guys who walked by him wearing colored shoes. It's a real, uh, he's professing, you know, he would profess Jesus Christ as his Savior, but that's what he wanted the Purdue students to know. And the kingdom of God just slices through all of that. The kingdom of God announces the real justice and wrath of God against sin, and we take sin seriously. And simultaneously, the kingdom of God is bringing blessing in you, all the families of the earth, 
shall be blessed. The kingdom of God is expansive in this way, and it moves into the world. It takes incredible wisdom to know how to, we, it's how to navigate that balance. It takes incredible wisdom to think together, how do we labor in the kingdom of God with this in mind? But there's more to the kingdom because another king shows up in this passage, doesn't he? And this thing just keeps growing in our understanding of what's happening in the kingdom. We've seen how the kingdom of God conquers enemies. We've seen the kingdom of God rescuing sinners. We've seen this simultaneous blessing and curse. We see number four in verses 17 to 24, a kingdom of a greater king priest. A kingdom of a greater king priest, verses 17 through 24. And of course, this is the point, particularly if you know connections to the book of Hebrews, that we're really even more fully going to land on Jesus Christ. And maybe your mindset is, well, once you land on Jesus, that's a good place to end the sermon. But there is a major implication we'll have for Jesus that will take us to the fifth point as well. But for now, the kingdom of a greater king priest. Abram encounters another king. He encounters King Melchizedek. The kingdom of God in Canaan, curiously, is bigger than maybe you thought. Maybe you thought Abram was the only worshiper of God. Another little insight for Christians. The kingdom of God, there's this expanse, this surprising meeting. Here it's Melchizedek. Melchizedek and the king of Sodom come out to meet the victorious king. For now, we'll just focus on Melchizedek. Hebrews... We'll think a little bit more about Hebrews 6 in a minute, but Hebrews, Hebrews 5, 6, 7 repeatedly tells us that Jesus is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So our eyes should be glued to this. Where in Melchizedek are we seeing the Lord Jesus Christ? Let's just look at some of the details of the story, pausing just a moment on the Hebrews connection, and let's just see what is going on with Melchizedek here. Well, we see immediately that Melchizedek is king of Salem, likely a location of the land of Jerusalem where God's people would dwell in years to come. Melchizedek is both king and priest. Quite significant here. What are priests? Priests are those who have access, who dwell in the presence of God and bring the presence and blessing of God to people. They are presence of God mediators, you might say. Now, Abram, if you read his life, does priestly things. He builds altars. He worships in the presence of God. But Melchizedek gets this title in a fuller or richer way. Melchizedek's kingly rule has a presence of God flavoring to it. It's immersed. You can taste it as he's coming, that he comes as a king bringing the holy presence of God. And having come from that presence, if you know the temple or tabernacle of Exodus, you know the holy of holies where God's priest could come and dwell with God. There is a kind of sense here where Melchizedek is coming, you might say, out of a pre-holy of holies. He's dwelt in God's presence as a priest. And he blesses Abram. He brings blessing. Now, already in Genesis, we've seen God bless Adam, God bless Noah, God bless Abram. Blessing comes from one who is greater. Blessing comes from one who 
has greater authority or perspective. And now it's, in a sense, Melchizedek taking the voice of God here to bring this blessing. And then after the blessing, Abram gives the first fruits of his stuff. He gives a tenth of everything to Melchizedek. In the early parts of Genesis, Adam and Noah and Abram have been, in a sense, told the world is yours. The world is yours to inherit. This land is your land, would be the message. But now it seems like the land is Melchizedek's. Melchizedek gets these first fruits. And so what we see is that as Abram's moving into this kingdom, he has encountered a kingliness that is greater than his own. He has encountered a kingliness in Melchizedek that has dwelt in the presence of God, that possesses the world in a sense, that the world would be his inheritance, and this king is a source of great blessing and promise to Abram. You see what Melchizedek says here in verse 19 and 20. Melchizedek says, blessed be Abram, you're going to receive blessing. God delivers your enemies into your hands. He is confirming and announcing to Abram that the promises of God are going to come true. He has a message, as it were, from the holy of holies, that God's promises are true. The promises of God in Melchizedek, they become, in a sense, incarnate, enfleshed. The promises of God, here's this king, you're going to succeed, Abram. And it's these themes that the book of Hebrews grabs onto. If you could, you, you could if you wanted, flip to Hebrews 6. You don't necessarily have to. But Hebrews chapter 6 grabs onto this altogether. Hebrews 6, verse 13 to 20, the book of Hebrews is written to guess who? People who are framed as living in the wilderness, needing to enter the promised land. That's what the early church is seen as. An early church people, they're in the wilderness needing to enter the promised land. They're just like people being written to by Moses, needing to enter the promised land. And they're struggling to enter, like some of you are struggling to persevere. And the writer of the Hebrews says, hey, remember that king that showed up to Abram? Remember what he had to say to Abram? Hebrews 6, 13 to 15, summarizing here. There are promises God made to Abram. There are promises for wilderness wanderers. But the question is, and you have promises this morning, The question is, well, why should I believe these promises? How do I know they're going to come true? Hebrews 6, 16, and 17 says, well, God swore by himself. But but how how do we know that's true? Can, Can I have proof? What's the guarantee of this promise? Hebrews 6 then says this, verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In a sense, the writer to the Hebrews, and maybe in a sense Moses writing to those in the wilderness in Genesis is communicating something like this. Wouldn't it be great, Christian? Wouldn't it be great if there was a king and a priest who dwells in the presence of God, 
who lives behind the curtain, who lives in God's holy presence, who conquers enemies, who would then come to you and speak to you in your wilderness experience and announce to you God's blessing and tells you, don't give up on the promises. Don't give up on the promises. They are true. I have been in the holy presence of God and they will come true. Blessed be this God. Wouldn't it be great to have a king like that? That's what Abram gets in Genesis 14. Abram in Genesis 14 gets a king that says, don't give up. Don't give up. I've been in the holy presence of God and I offer you his blessing. And today the church of Jesus Christ gets a king who does the exact same thing, but greater. He lives behind the curtain. He lives in the holy presence of God in the holy heaven that we sang about actually in Psalm 11. He lives in that holy temple. And he comes and tells you the promises of God are for you. So don't give up in the promised land. Abram has a reason to carry on. And we have a reason to carry on. Because our Melchizedek is Jesus Christ. You are on a kingdom pilgrimage. As of Genesis 14, not everything has come true for Abram. He doesn't even have a child yet. And that was the whole center of all the promises. And not everything has come true for you. And your hopes for the kingdom of God. But do you have an anchor behind the curtain? You have a Melchizedek who has dwelt in the presence of God, and he announces to you this morning that God's promises are true. And this might be disorienting. This, again, might thrust you onto the left side of the road because you're going to have to give up yourself as the greatest king in this kingdom. If you had any fancies that maybe you would be the greatest conqueror around, that's over as of the meeting of Melchizedek because there is a greater king. But it also might disorient you into giving up the anxieties and the fears that the kingdom of God will not come true for you or for the church. Maybe you've been been living, driving in a world where you don't really know if the promises of God are going to come true. Jesus Christ is crucified. He is risen. He dwells behind the curtain at greater access than Melchizedek has. And the message to you is, It's going to come true. The promises will come true. You have a greater king priest. You have a greater king priest. His name is Jesus Christ. And once you embrace this, you accept this, you believe with Abram what has been spoken by this king, you got to be ready for number five. You got to be ready for the fifth feature of the kingdom. It is a kingdom of a heavenly wealth. It is a kingdom of a heavenly wealth wealth. In verse 21, the king of Sodom proposes a deal to Abram. You take the spoil, I'll take my people back. And Abram reacts very strongly. And note the kind of sick irony of the king of Sodom trying to enter the conversation here. He has just had his skin saved by Abram. And he has just observed Melchizedek offering the blessing of God to him to Abram, a holy throne room blessing. The proper response at this point is on your knees in worship. And the king of Sodom says, well, that's nice. Thank you, Melchizedek, for what you had to say to Abram. I would like to take my turn 
to be Abram's great source of blessing. I am going to let him keep the spoils. I as well am going to offer blessing. And so Abram can kind of have a two-headed monster of kingly blessing, King Melchizedek, king of Sodom. Don't you see us as sort of your two best friends? And Abram says, you don't have a clue. You don't have a clue. And this will happen in the kingdom of God. There are rival kings, rival sources of blessing offered to you. And Abram's being tempted here. Tempted like Eve in a sense. Tempted like all of his, uh, those who went before him. Almost as Satan himself coming and saying, hey, how about you give up on the promised land? How about you go this way? How about you take the blessings in this manner? What we discover in Abram's response is that Abram has absorbed what Melchizedek said to him. Abram says, verse 22, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. He's just quoting Melchizedek. Because Melchizedek in verse 19, that's what he called God. Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Note that heaven and earth distinction here. Sodom king makes no reference to the living God. Sodom's king's eyes are on this world. Alan Ross here points out that the pagan religions of that day would not have had a heaven and earth distinction. The heaven-earth gap would be gone. Everything in their eyes would be of this world. You might be able to put it like this. They had no ability to truly look up. They could only look out at the stuff around them. And when you can't look up, but you can only look out, your view of the kingdom, your view of living in this world is going to be radically centered on the stuff of this world, on the things you can see, taste, touch, and so forth. This glorious kingdom discovery of the Holy of Holies as of verse 21 is suddenly tempted to be a property negotiation. And this can happen in all our views of the kingly advance of God in this world. As we move into the culture, those outside the church will tell us that kingdom advance and blessing, it's really all about gross domestic product or unemployment rates or uh, the amount of tanks that a nation has and that sort of thing. Even inside the church, our spiritual uh, advance, our putting on the full armor of God, our desire to be in his holy presence, you can descend so fast and arguing about money, property, goods, and you tell the world, and you tell the church, what we really care about is the bottom line. We care about what's right in front of our eyes. Friends, it's possible for even in the church of Jesus Christ to argue in ways that would make the king of Sodom really proud. Really proud. Because our eyes would be distracted. And Abram looks at the king of Sodom and says, I have a message from the Holy of Holies. I dwell, I I anchor here from a dwelling in heaven itself. My starting point is the living God of heaven and earth. Jesus came preaching the kingdom of heaven. My blessing comes from heaven. May your gold perish with you. Is basically what he tells the king of Sodom. Abram's mind, and I pray our mind, our anchor holds beyond the veil. It rests in the holy place. Once you know, listen, once you know where your king priest lives, 
Your high priest king this morning dwells in heaven high before the angels in the holy of holy of holy of holies and is building his church from that perspective. Once you know that, that becomes the platform from which all the decisions of life get made. It doesn't mean you leave the stuff of this world and just forget that this world exists. It just means you start from a heavenly perspective and then move into this world. You launch from a new horizon. So what's the payout of that? What's the payout of this new perspective? Well, for one, as you receive stuff in this world, as God is good to you, you learn to celebrate heavenly blessing at every turn. More than your ingenuity, more than the generosity of those around you. The best chefs, the best stay-at-home cooks still thank God before their meals from a godly perspective, right? They know who provided it. It's the God of heaven and earth. Or maybe you're in conflict or confusion right now. How quickly can you get the conversation up to the Holy of Holies? How quickly can you launch at this thing from the perspective that Melchizedek brings, from the God of heaven and earth? How quickly in your heart and mind in conversation can you seek the the priestly angle? What's the perspective on this from the holy throne room of God? How can that be brought into this kingdom struggle we are having? And then just learn to live your life with this basic idea that Jesus matters more than your stuff. And kids, maybe one of you has a birthday this week, and this is what you need to hear, because you're going to be opening presents tomorrow, and you just need to remember that Abram realized that there are things that mattered more than getting the most things. And some adults need to learn that too, right? Abram realized that getting the king of Sodom's goods would distract him from the thing that Melchizedek offered. And we have a greater Melchizedek who's offering us himself. And so sometimes we have to make decisions that say, you know what, I could get more. I could put my hands on more. I could want more, but it's going to distract me from King Jesus. It's going to distract me from the wealth that he offers. So you know what, I'm not even going to touch that. I'm going to let it go because I want Jesus Christ. I want my greater Melchizedek. Let's have our eyes on Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his love. We thank you that it's a kingly love, that he doesn't simply have warm feelings toward us, but he's powerful and mighty to save, and he has done it. Thank you for that reminder this morning. Let us be centered on Jesus, our king, in whom we pray. Amen. Let's turn to 110B. This is sort of an automatic. You have to sing this psalm after Genesis 14 because it's a psalm that sings about... Jesus sings about the priest after the order of Melchizedek. You all know who that is. It's anticipating Christ or conquering king priests. Let's stand for 110B.